I keep hoping that we're going to get to the point in Genesis where my Bible will stay open without my having to lay my phone on it. But I don't know that we're quite there yet. That might be Exodus 1. Somebody just tuned in on that just when I said Exodus, and they're like, we made it to Exodus? No, no, sorry, we haven't. Uh, back to Genesis chapter 45. Last week, we thought we recorded on this mic, and what we actually recorded was on Michael's laptop mic. So we got my message and Michael's commentary. So it's even more edifying. It's doubly edifying to you. You can get both of those at once. All right, let me read for us, starting in Genesis 45. Uh, you'll recall last week we were just at the end in chapter 44, the end of Judah's impassioned plea to substitute himself for Benjamin, and therefore we pick up here and, well, just read the last verse of, last couple of verses of uh, 44, verse 33 maybe is a good start. Therefore, please let your servant remain, that's Judah, remain instead of the lad, that's Benjamin, a slave to my, to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? Chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household, and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt, and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the journey. 
Then they went up from Egypt and came into the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. Indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. May you shape our hearts to run after you as we consider your compassion to your people and your promises and your power towards them. Lord, I pray this morning that you would transform our hearts by the power of your spirit as we consider your word. We pray this for the glory of Christ and in his name. Amen. Well, I thought it's been a couple weeks since I gave you a nice alliterated outline, so I, I went to town with it this week. Um, somehow this happens when I take a walk. I guess my brain just you know, gets into a pattern of these things. So as we move through this chapter, we're, we're going to follow. We're still kind of in this journey log thing as we move through the, journey, the brother's journey down to Canaan, or down to Egypt to Canaan, to Egypt to Canaan, uh, back and forth, back and forth. But as we move through this, we're going to see first Joseph's exclamation, right? exclamation, like, I am Joseph, and then his explanation of what's happened to him and how his brothers ought to interact with, interact with him, his exhortation to them, his encouragement and his commands to them, Pharaoh's extension, uh, see that extension of Joseph's exhortation, and then how all of that results finally in Jacob's long-awaited invigoration. Now that's with an I, but if I didn't tell you that, you wouldn't hear it, right? So there we go. So exclamation, explanation, exhortation, extension, and invigoration. Um, so remember in your minds this scene. The brothers still even though they've had that kind of tingly spider sense of something's unusual, something's wrong in this, he seems to know what order we're born in and whatever, for both his change in appearance, the grandeur of his station, and, and just particularly, I think, the fact that he's speaking to them through an interpreter, the brothers still don't know who they're talking to, right? We, and we forget that because we do know. We're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're not. Now, remember that they have experienced, the last time they were there particularly, they've experienced the guilt in their conscience of, hey, we're receiving this hardship that has come upon us because we are aware of our, our sins before God. God is bringing this hardship on us because we know what we did to our brother. But that doesn't mean, and they, they have certainly no inclination in their minds, that this has anything to do with the fact that they're dealing with their brother, right? They're completely clueless, and we tend to forget that. So Judah has come up to plead for what he thinks is genuinely Benjamin's guilt. Uh, and he, he's come up, he's brought himself as, as the leader of the family to, to make this impassioned plea to Joseph to substitute himself for his brother. Remember, the rest of the brothers are kind of waiting further back. He's come up onto the dais, maybe a little bit like this, with the coffee machine standing right next to them, uh, just for added som solemnity. There's a coffee machine standing there. No, he's come up onto the, he's come up onto the dais to, to speak to him privately and to implore him to allow himself to substitute himself for his brother. And he explains the same thing he explained to, to Jacob, that he, he couldn't not go back because he said to his father, I, I will substitute myself for him. I'll give up. If I don't bring him back, I'd give up this new place of leadership I have in the family. Uh, and he 
articulates to Joseph again and again and again this driving motivation, his deep compassion for his father. And so Joseph has now seen the complete reversal of the dynamics that had plagued his family. Judah confesses over and over, yeah, my father thinks of it as he has two sons. My father's favoritism, in essence, has not changed, but I've come to accept that. I, I understand the Lord's purposes here. I'm going to offer myself for the sake of my father in place of my brother. So it's a complete reversal of what's happened now some 30 years ago when Judah says, hey, instead of killing Joseph, we could make money on him. Right? That's Judah's, Judah's great response when the brothers have him in the pit and they can't figure out what to do. Judah says, it's an opportunity for money. Now, with the last remaining of the hated line of Rachel in his power and the opportunity to go home with all the money and all the excuse of, well, the boss of Egypt said I couldn't take him home. He says, no, I'll substitute myself for him. Now, Joseph cannot control himself any longer. And I reminded you last week that Joseph, sometimes we think of Joseph as if he's kind of this perfect reformed automaton who just moves along constantly saying, all oh, the will of God, therefore my emotions are not engaged. And I reminded you that, no, he's a person who, who thinks passionately and rightly his emotions are, are fully engaged in the right ways. And we'll see that as we move through this, this chapter, he is stirred with compassion for his family, but he keeps those things very carefully under control so that he can bring about the purposes of God, so that he can honor the Lord as he moves through these things. But now, in the face of this absolutely stunning change in Judah. You, you have to think that Joseph, and we'll talk about this as we move along, that Joseph has wondered at some point what this reunion might be like. He has this uh, assurance that at some point there's going to be a reunion because the brothers haven't yet bowed down to him. So at some point the brothers are going to bow down to him in the future. He remembers the dream from when he's a kid. He has to be wondering, are they bowing down because they hate me? Are they bowing down because the Lord has brought about reconciliation? What will this look like? And this has to be beyond even the best of his dreams that his brothers would be here as as he can see in, in full contrition and this, this absolute turn in Judah's perspective, but with all the brothers standing there, that they, would not, they won't give up their brother, that their attitudes have changed, and so Joseph can no longer control himself. Now, he sends out all of his Egyptian attendants. I don't know all why that might be. The text doesn't tell us. I suspect it's probably not the best political decision to talk about your deep family secrets in front of all your Egyptian attendants. Hey, you remember when you sold me to Egypt? And they're like, hey, Pharaoh, this guy, you know, I don't know. Uh, but at the core of it, this is a, a family matter. Now it's time to change the perspective. It's been high Egyptian official, lowly Hebrew slaves. Now it's time to deal with this on a family matter. So he's going to change the dynamic. He's going to change the scene so that he can have this conversation with them, and probably so he doesn't embarrass himself in front of his staff, even though he's so overcome now with his emotion that it can be heard through the, I don't know, marble walls, all the way into Pharaoh's household next door. I don't think this is a primary point of this text. I just do think it's interesting. When it comes down to the family business that he has to do here, to, to reckon through the realities of this repentance and this turning and the, the challenges that he's had with his family, he makes sure that takes place in his family. And I just think that's a, that's a really interesting thing, right? It, there is New Testament principle later. And again, I don't think this is the purpose of this text. I just think it's a, a great, maybe in the flesh example of this. We don't take our, our difficult reconciliation and the hard things we have to work through with each other out in front of a watching world. 
right? This is something because we have compassion for each other, because we care most for God's glory. You know what? Sometimes you have hard things that you have to work through in the life of the church. What do we not do? I'm, Chris hadn't got there quite yet, I don't think. But, or actually, we already did. We, we don't take that to court, right? We don't take that out in front of the watching world. We say, okay, within the bounds of the family, for the sake of the family and for the sake of God's glory in it, we're not going to pretend that difficult things don't happen. He's going to get down to brass tacks with the difficult things that have happened in this family. But he says that's something that's going to happen between us as family because hopefully at the end of it, we're all going to come out pulling in the same direction for God's glory. There's no need to have the Egyptian sitting here and dealing with this. I don't know. Maybe he's got some pretty zealous bodyguards standing around and they're like, you did what to him? You know, he's like, no, not yet. Don't tase him yet. Okay. He just, he brings that in and, and brings it to the right point. Now think about this is amazing because right here, he could exercise all the vengeance and all the, even just the, the momentary joy of getting, you know, a moment of terror out of them, right? He could say, I am Joseph with all the guards around locked and loaded, right? He could do that and then be like, but it's okay, right? Now it's, you know, he could give them that one further jolt of adrenaline of like, oh, this is him and he's going to bring things home. Instead, even as he's losing control, he sets up this scenario so that he can properly comfort and care for his brothers, even as they work through this difficulty. And again, I just think it's one more example of Joseph's godliness. He's so careful to bring everything about in a way that he brings God's agendas to the forefront and his own desires to the background. And I think that's an incredible thing. So I do think that's inherent in the text. Whether or not you want to bring that out as an example of this later principle of, hey, we're not going to air our dirty laundry and our difficult conversations out in front of the rest of the watching world so that we can work through them together. We have to work through them so that we can work through them together so that we come out of it all pulling for the glory of God together. I don't know, but I do think absolutely in the text he's saying, hey, I'm going to set up this environment so that my brothers can best be helped in our conversation. And I just think, again, it's a beautiful example of his compassion for them. So his exclamation, I am Joseph. Now, we are ready for that because we've known all along. Evidently, his brothers are just, and this is fascinating because Judah's like standing two feet away from him. I mean, I get he's the son of the other mother, but still, somehow the, the terror and the uncertainty and the difficulty of these events, they know which direction they sold him. Of course, they think he's dead. They've already said they think he's dead. But they know that they sold him down to Egypt, and none of these things have added up into a point where they're like, oh, maybe did you consider that this might be Joseph? There's no, absolutely no idea until all of a sudden judgment is upon them. And he says, I am Joseph. And they're like, oh, this just got way worse. Right? Now, I would imagine flooding into them, they're like, we knew this wasn't a coincidence. It's a trap. Now, I love, I love Joseph's declaration here because I, I think it just reveals so much of his heart. They don't see this yet, but we, we do. Joseph just can't wait to make himself known to his brothers. Right? They, they hear... I am Joseph, as if the trap has just sprung shut. But as we'll see in Joseph's heart, Joseph is like, I'm your brother. He, he is so eager to begin this process of reconciliation. Now, we're going to see him explain that in a minute. 
But that's remarkable. We'll talk, about, we'll talk about that in a minute, I promise. I just want you to see here, his heart is full of this desire for reconciliation, and then immediately on his lips after that, the most important thing to him. And isn't it amazing that it's also the most important thing that he's just heard out of Judah's lips? How's dad? How's my father? They've told him lots of times he's alive. Now, of course, he has reason to wonder whether they're telling him the truth at every point, despite their protests that they're honest men, right? He's like, okay, now that we're really talking to each other, is he really still alive? But it's not that he's questioning that. It's that he's so, he has such a heart of concern for his father. And I just think this is a, this, this beautiful thing. I thought about it this week. He's not really had any opportunity to do anything about his concern for his father, because most of this time that he's been gone, he's been in jail. He's been a, a, a prisoner. So there's not been any aspect of him that could, could reach out and care for his father. Now, he's been independent. He's been in power now for, what, seven-ish years, five years of good years, and now two years of famine. But he's been in power, but I, I kind of doubt he can get a visa stamp in his passport to run the land of Egypt in the middle of a famine. Oh, also, I'm going to go hope and see whether my hostile brothers have kept my father alive. Probably not really been in his bounds. But even more, I would say, he's waiting. He's waiting on God's timing. And I do think this is just absolutely remarkable. He has this deep heart of compassion for his father. We'll see how he, he encourages his father to see that as we go along. And yet he's been waiting. And think about what would have happened if Joseph just hopped in his chariot and marched his way with you know, a couple battalions of Egyptian spearmen behind him to go reconcile with his father. There would be no time for God to do his work. There would be no time for God to bring out this amazing reconciliation that God has brought about here. If you go marching in with the spearmen, you'll never know if the brothers have had opportunity to have their hearts changed or not. But he's, he is aware, because of his dreams, that God is going to bring about reconciliation. He is aware, as we'll see, that God is going to bring the family down to Egypt. And so he's patiently waited, even when his heart is clearly so deeply moved with compassion for his father. And again, his self-control and his desire to please the Lord is just amazing. In it. And yet, now that this moment has come... I'm your brother, and I really want to know. Tell me all there is to know about how dad is. It's just a beautiful expression of his compassion. However, this is not the impression that the brothers have. So now we'll get into the explanation. The brothers are like, the trap has just come shut. This was bad. Now it's worse. He says, come closer. They're like, no, no, come closer. No, don't want to come closer. Notice his explanation. His explanation is so interesting. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. They're like, oh boy, here we go. Okay. Hold on to that for just a minute. I want you to see Joseph does not beat around the bush. He doesn't pretend nothing happened. Okay. We're going to have a real conversation about the difficult things that happened here. And the brothers are like, oh boy, here we go. By the way, let's pause for a moment and think about the brothers' reaction. They've been under the conviction, at least their last journey down here, they've been under the conviction of, hey, these things are happening to us because we silenced our hearts to our brothers' cries for mercy. That's a very different thing than suddenly finding yourself face-to-face -face with somebody who can do something about it, somebody who cares deeply about doing something about it, and they know it. Again, I don't think the primary purpose of this text is to remind us about coming judgment, but boy, is it an example of it. Guys, you have, by God's grace, the gift of conviction brought upon you for sin at various points in your life. Hey, I'm aware 
that my life has not measured up to God's standard, that I have not treated so-and-so the way that I ought to treat, that I have not thought in my, in my heart about something in a way that would honor God. You have an awareness of that. Let me tell you, that's a very different thing than suddenly coming face-to-face -face with judge, jury, and executioner in one person. The brothers, I am sure, are seized with terror at this point. Wouldn't you be? You, you knew that you, you forced him into this Midianite caravan while he was imploring and begging and weeping that you wouldn't do so, and all of a sudden you've discovered yourself before the chief man of Egypt whose words to you are, I'm that guy you sold into slavery. This, you would be chilled. You would be stunned. Guys, I, I just think it's such a great moment to pause and consider the gravity of coming face to face with your sins. You have to come face to face with your sins at some point. You don't know when that point is coming. The brothers did not wake up this morning happy from their dinner party the night before, loaded up with their silver, heading out on the road faster than they thought they would turn around with the awareness that all of a sudden their sins of 20 some years before were gonna come returning home in one crashing sentence. They just didn't think about it that way. But that time was coming. It was ticking closer and closer towards them. If you think this is chilling, think for a moment that these are imperfect people who have inflicted a grievous sin against their admittedly rather annoying younger brother, right? They could say, in mitigation, he's the favored son of the other family, and there was this family warfare. Guys, when we stand before the judge of our souls, there is no mitigation. And it's not one act of sin years before. It's the course and pattern of your life. We stand before God, sinners who have committed acts of sin because we are sinners by nature from birth. We're rebels against his power, right? They're here for one act of family treachery. When you come crashing face to face before your judge apart from Christ, you're there for not one act of treachery, but a nature of treachery exhibited in thousands and thousands of acts through your life. I, I hope this moment, just put yourselves in their shoes for one moment and think, what would this moment be like? What terror would you feel? What sudden clarity would you experience about the true nature of what you've done? I don't know what they've told themselves for years and years until that moment uh, of their first conviction when they began to be aware that what they did was grievously evil, but I guarantee you at this moment when he presents them with the evidence against them, they have absolute clarity about the evil that they have committed against him. Judgment has come home, and it's come home in their hearts with this certain awareness that they are guilty. And it's just a shocking moment. Put yourselves in those shoes for a moment and be reminded of the peril that our souls are in apart from the kindness and compassion of our Savior. But now, see a little bit of that kindness and compassion exhibited. Again, I don't think that the primary purpose of this text is to be a parable of our salvation and judgment, but it is clearly an example of God's working in the world and his unchanging holy character in the world, and now we get to see this beautiful example of God's compassion and his purposes working out in this amazing character of Joseph. Joseph starts out with the hard reality. You sold me into Egypt, but notice his follow-up. Notice his explanation. It is flowing with compassion. Verse 5, now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. What? 
It's not even, it's not even, don't worry about it, okay? Let's put that behind us and move toward the future. I'm not angry or grieved about it anymore. You know how that would be so remarkable for Joseph to stand there and say, but don't worry, I'm over it. Don't worry, I'm not grieved or concerned about it anymore. That's true for him. No, notice what he says, don't you be grieved or worried about that. You calm and quiet your hearts about that. Don't be terrified, be comforted. Why? Not because they didn't do a dreadful, evil thing, but because he recognizes God's greater purpose in this. Because, verse 5 again, you sold me here, that's true, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Right? I have suggested to you through this whole several weeks, several months journey through the Joseph story that this purpose has been locked into Joseph's consciousness at each level of his difficulty and his journey down to Egypt and through his time in Potiphar's house and then in prison and even at this point, even when, as he says, God made him forget his family, it's because this purpose that he now articulates has been clinging, or that he's been clinging to it in his mind. There is an absolutely evil thing that has been perpetrated against me. He doesn't shy around that, and I think that's so important. But God has a greater purpose in this. He's not discounting the sin. He's focusing on God's greater purpose and God's compassion for his people. Now that, I think, is absolutely clearly a principle for us to move forward on. How is Joseph not bitter? I think I told you, Sam said, bitterness is, is a great study tool, right? Because you, you review it every morning, right? <laughs> but he, instead of reviewing his bitterness every morning, he has been locked into one line of thinking. When he wakes up in the morning and he's like, man, this prison stinks. Instead of his first follow-up thought being, and my brothers sold me here, no, I won't think that. I will think God has a purpose for my family, God has a purpose to bless the world, and I get to be a part of it. And so the means by which I get to be a part of it aren't as important as the fact that I have the privilege and joy of fulfilling God's purpose for me. Now, he's doing that on the basis of what he knows of God's promises to his family and on the basis of his dreams, right? Which I would say, wow, that's not a lot to go on. It's clearly enough for him to go on. You get to do that on this whole book. You know the whole big picture. He doesn't even know whether he gets to, you know, actually have children to be part of this or whether he gets to go down to Egypt and they bow down to him and all sorts of bad things happen. I mean, he doesn't know what this looks like. You know what God's plans and purposes look like. Guys, what an absolute difference this makes. I, I have told you before that I struggle with bitterness. I struggle with, diff, with thinking well of people as I move through life. People irritate me for little petty reasons all through the week, right? What a difference to say, this is God's church. He will surely build it. This is God's purpose and plan to draw many people to redemption. I don't know what my part in that looks like, but I know that I am only gonna, I'm only going to fulfill that when I'm locked on him, when my heart is full of his joy and his character. Right? So when, when he is faced with this moment of reconciliation with his brothers, Vengeance isn't on his mind. Moving forward to the future isn't on his mind. Comforting them and drawing them into his view of God's plans and purposes is on his mind. Isn't that amazing? He says, look, calm yourselves, comfort yourselves, not because it wasn't evil, but 
I'll let God take care of that in his justice. God's brought about this amazing reconciliation in you. Now think, you too get to be part of God's reconciling redemptive purposes in the world. You too get to take part now. I'm going to give you your marching orders to take part in God saving his people and God bringing his people down to Egypt so that many lives can be preserved. You too get to join in that with me and that's what I've been thinking about every morning, right? So when that person just annoys you and annoys you and annoys you and annoys you and you're sitting there thinking, ah, oh, if only they could see God's perspective and if they could only see my compassion for them because I would long for them to know Christ the way I know Christ. Guys, Eva said this morning something that I have been thinking about all week. She had an orientee that drove her nuts. I know she drove her nuts because she came to my house and drank orange tea and told me this orientee drives me nuts, right? And yet, Eva's character in that, and I know this is not just Eva, you guys do this all the time in your workplace. Eva's character and her longing to, to honor the Lord and speak of him well and to, to live a life of Christian holiness before her. What did that person see? Oh, when I need compassion, when I need somebody to help me think through my place standing before God, well, I know who I can call. I can call Eva. I would imagine she probably had a little inkling of the fact that she and Eva were clashing at points. And yet, Eva's compassion and care for her were such that she's like, oh, that's the person I want to turn to. Guys, wouldn't, wouldn't that be lovely if that was true of us all the time? This church would be just flourishing more than it is, right? If, if we would constantly, constantly be approaching each one of these admittedly much less difficult moments of friction and turmoil in our lives with, I know that God is going to build his church. I know that he's going to save his people. I know that the people he calls will surely come to him. I know that we get to speak the truth to one another in love so that the church might be built. I know that I get to exercise forgiveness and compassion towards my fellow believers and, and towards the world, and that's what I wake up to do every morning. Then when that person who sold you into slavery or actually just forgot to give you your Starbucks order, right, comes to you and says, ah, who is this Jesus? You're like, oh, I've been longing to give you his compassion, and longing to give you his perspective on things. It's a beautiful thing, and I know I'm running myself out of time, but that's okay, because it's, so, it's such a wonderful thing to see. To summarize that, he's not unaware of the evil. He's overwhelmed with God's own purposes and compassion and kindness, and so he comforts them. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then he reminds them of all the things that are true. He's been made a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household. You know that. He knows he's a ruler. And now, verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God's made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. Be near me. Live with me. Right? Now he finally has this wonderful blessing opportunity from the Lord to go and care for his father. And so he's going he's gonna to do it in a, a big fashion. He promises them land and her and then Pharaoh's expansion on that promise, Pharaoh gets right on board with this. This is God's kindness and providence again, because notice this amazing thing I pointed out to you last time this phrase came up too. Verse 16, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. That never happens in politics, right? Maybe you get the boss man to like something, but all of his servants don't. Just look at the story of Daniel. The boss man likes him, and everybody else is like, how do we get this? How do we take him out? Now, by God's kind supernatural provision to rescue his people, the entire Egyptian political system has a new banner in their party standard. We get to save the Israelites. Isn't this a cool, amazing thing? And they're like, you guys talking? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, the Israelites are so cool. It's like the, the new fashion. Everybody wants to wear Israelite garments or something, right? It's, uh, they're the cool thing. This is God's absolute supernatural provision to rescue his people. Joseph 
has so carefully prepared to be kind to his father, but now God enacts his deliverance. And I just think this is wonderful. Pharaoh says, you think what you're doing is important for national security and prosperity. I've got something even more important for you to do than managing the grain. Take a bunch of wagons and go bring your dad down here, right? That'd be like chartering Air Force One to go pick, you know, your friend up from vacation in the in Europe, you know, I'll just, we'll just use that. It's not a big deal. Come on, bring them, bring them home. And so God uses this moment of Joseph's wisdom to bring about supernatural preservation for his people to such an extent. Verse 20, do not concern yourself with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Don't even pack. Leave your MacBooks at home. We got better ones. You can have those, right? This is the same Pharaoh who was so upset in the dream. Those don't look like Egyptian standard cows. He's like, we'll give you Egyptian standard cows. You come down here, we'll give you the best stuff, right? Don't even worry about it. And so the sons of Israel do so. I'm trying to move through this quickly so we can actually finish up. So the sons of Israel do so. They listen to Pharaoh's extension. And notice Joseph's kindness. He wants to bring this home to his father. Um, and so he, he gives Benjamin an extra bounty. He gives the brothers each a change of clothes. Then he says, I haven't seen my baby brother in so long, so he gets three changes of clothes. I don't know if a little bit of that is like, I can be nice to my brother too. Like, you guys, you know, you really don't have a leg to stand on here about complaining about favoritism. So here's three decades worth of birthday presents, one in each, each thing. I don't know. Uh, but then notice what he sends for his father. To his father, verse 23, he sent as follows. Ten donkeys, that's male donkeys, loaded with the best things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. Why? Why this extravagance for it? Because he knows Jacob is going to be reluctant to leave. And he probably knows Jacob well enough, even from when he was a young person, to know that Jacob's heart is broken and maybe that he's not really walking very carefully through this. I think he has a, an inkling of this. So he's, he's going to load up his compassion and his mercy and his kindness as a person for his father so that he makes it easy for his father to see that this is that very thing that God has promised to do to save our family. Right? I, I, again, what sweet compassion that he doesn't just say to his father, hey, remember that we had dreams and remember that at one point Abraham was told we're all going to come down to Egypt for a long time. Oh, by the way, I'm alive. He thinks so carefully, how can I serve my father? How can I make this journey easy for him? How can I make it real to him when I can't go myself? How can I make it real to him that I'm not only alive, but that my concern and care for him is alive? Because Joseph, Jacob could be like, he's been alive for all this time and he's the boss of Egypt and he didn't even send a card, right? No, he's, he's, he's going to make it so clear to his father, he's making it as easy as possible for his father to accept what God's brought about and the kindness and the provision that he has for him. And notice how that works about. This is Jacob's invigoration. He sent his brothers away. I told you before, this is my favorite verse. And as they departed, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. I, I, I mean, the one point, he's been so good. He's been so good. He's said all the right things at all the right points. He's never said, I told you so, right? He's never, never one moment, but he gets to have the one thing right here to say. Also, I know who you are. Don't, don't shatter this moment. It's been a nice moment. Don't shatter this moment on the way home. Be nice to each other on the way home. Now, some commentators suggest that maybe he's saying, don't fear on the way home. What's dad going to say when, he, when you get home and say, oh, yeah, by the way, when we said we killed him, actually, we didn't, but we did something worse, right? Um, but I, let's just leave it with Corold on the way because it's such a great moment. It's the one, it's the one great uh, line that he gets to have. So those of you who make memes, there's your, 
There's your task for the day. You find out what this looks like for them not to quarrel on the journey. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he's ruler over all Egypt. How did that conversation go down? Like, who did they pick for that? I guess Judah had to do it because he's the new, you want to tell him? No, I want to tell him. You want to tell him? Maybe Benjamin comes running into Cam. It's like, Dad, Joseph's in there. Like, oh, somebody else told him, right? But who, how, how did that conversation go down to roll into camp and say, you see all these donkeys? That's a lot of donkeys. Well, actually, it's because, I, I don't know. How do, I would say there's a principle here. If at some point you've got to square up and admit what you've done, but I don't really think that's the point of the text. So uh, I just think it's got to be the most deliciously awkward moment where dad has been sitting there going, I want to die for years, and they have to come in and say, you think this is going to kill him? I don't know, worth a shot. Okay, so they come in and they say, they just get right to it. Joseph's still alive. And he also is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. He didn't even hear that part. He just heard that Joseph's still alive, right? Verse 26, he was stunned, for he did not believe them. Okay, well, you can understand why he might not believe these boys, right? His heart is stunned. He just can't fathom what has happened to me. And I, what I just suggest to you for a moment here. Maybe at this point, Jacob realizes that his 20-plus years now of sitting in his tent saying, I hope I could die, hasn't been the best example of trusting the Lord and honoring him at every stage in his life. Do you think maybe for a moment, the years of pitying himself that he's indulged in have come home a little bit as, wow, that's a lost, that's 20 years I'm not getting back? I don't know, maybe that's just my reading myself back into the text, but you've had those moments or those weeks or months where you've been so engaged in your bitterness and the difficulty that's come upon you in your life, and you've so lost track of the, the fact that God is surely doing something for you and in you in your life if you're in Christ, and then all of a sudden the Lord brings home a bit of kindness and you realize his promises were sure, his mercy was sure, his kindness was sure, and then there's this moment of, there's a week or a month or a period of bitterness that I'm just not getting back. I wonder if that came home to him there. But nonetheless, Joseph was so wise to soothe the stunned heart with much compassion. Notice this, verse 27. They told him all the words of Joseph that he'd spoken to them, and he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's not getting through. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. That's what I, I just think it's a beautiful kindness for Jacob to know, Joseph to know his father so well and to, to take the time to do the physical, normal human thing of preparing him not just with the words and with the truth, but with this kind gift, this demonstration of his compassion for somebody to say, hey, I want to reinvigorate you towards what the Lord has for you. I want to reinvigorate you for my care, and not just because, as we so often do, hey, let's go to Starbucks. Whack, here's some truth, right? Deal with that. No, let's go to Starbucks. Let me buy you some coffee, one of those huge, you know, venti things with all the foam in it and everything else. Let me buy you a bunch of calories. Let me welcome you into my heart. Let me demonstrate my compassion now. Would you notice the kindness the Lord has for you? Yeah, I just think Joseph is a master of demonstrating a genuine, all-around, full orbed compassion to his father and it's that act that revives the spirit of their father Jacob and Israel says 
Notice the switch in the narration. All of a sudden, he's Israel again. His spirit's revived. I think by his spirit reviving, as we'll see in chapter 46 next week, his spirit revives because all of a sudden he remembers God and he remembers his plans and purposes for him. He's broken out of his self-pitying into an awareness of his place in God's plan again. And he says, it's enough. This is enough. My discontent is at an end. It's all of this turmoil and disgrace that's happened in my family that I've failed to exercise leadership over. I've failed to do anything but just sit here. The turmoil between you, my sons, the wars, the jealousies, the favoritism, it's enough. My son Joseph's alive. Now he can't resist saying something about his death again. I'll go and see him before I die. They're like, Dad, stop, stop with the death thing. Okay? Now, next week we'll see. I know we need to be done. Next week we'll see this amazing prayer that comes out of his revived spirit and his his reconciliation with God's purposes and plans for him. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray that with Joseph, I might be, and these young people might be, so full of your glory, so full of your character by the power of your spirit that the difficulties and the wrongs done against us are seen as something that you can deal with and, and as glorious opportunities for displaying your character, your redemption, your reconciliation, to those around us. Lord, I pray that you would bring great glory to your Son through us in these things. We pray in his name. Amen.